Welcome, welcome to the nth dimension. Thanks so much for being here as always, and thanks so much for lending me your pair of ears. As you may have noticed, I haven't produced an episode in a while, and full transparency, full honesty, I have been a little bored with life, and boredom essentially translated to me not wanting to participate in this capitalist world as much and not participate in the means of production, no matter how creative it may be and no matter how this podcast may be my creative outlet. The pandemic definitely got to me. The openings and closing definitely affected my well-being. And in the process, I lost my will to participate in creating this wonderful podcast, which I began as an outlet for myself and to participate in exploring the zeitgeist. And honestly, today, I couldn't think of a better topic to come back with than what we will be talking about today. So before I tell you what that is, riddle me with this question. When was the last time you felt low? Or when was the last time you felt anxious? Maybe you had a panic attack. When was the last time you had a panic attack? Maybe you're someone who experiences chronic anxiety. Maybe you know someone with bipolar disorder. Maybe you know someone with schizophrenia. All of us have either experienced or know someone who has experienced poor mental health. Or we know someone who experiences a mental illness. But like a flu or fever, we've all had those days where we just don't want to get out of bed. So today we're going to be talking about mental health, something that we experience so closely in our lives. Some interesting but honestly disturbing facts. Approximately 20% of Canadian youth are affected by a mental illness or disorder. In 2011, 11% of 15 to 24 year olds reported experiencing depression. Between 2008-2009 and 2018-2019, among youth there was a 61% increase in emergency department visits and a 60% increase in hospitalizations for mental disorders. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth and young adults between 15 to 34, but it is the leading cause of death among young indigenous people. In Canada, only one out of five children receive appropriate mental health services. Between 2017 and 2021, more than 21,800 Canadians died from suspected opioid overdoses and more than 15,520 by suicide. The quality of mental health of Canadians has decreased so much that Canada appointed its first federal minister for mental health and addictions in the cabinet reshuffle in last year's election, Carolyn Bennett. The key priorities of her folder include setting up permanent mental health funding transfers to provinces, expanding access to care for youth, students, indigenous peoples, and veterans, overseeing mental health spending in Canada, and she has also been tasked with setting up Canada's three-digit suicide helpline. Honestly, what this tells me is that the government has also realized that it's time to focus on mental health and include it in our OHIP services. Just like when we suffer a physical illness, we get free service at the point of access. I think the government is slowly realizing, not just the government, I think people are also slowly realizing that we need free access to mental health services. What that may look like, honestly, I do not know, but I'm sure the solutions out there exist. So to talk to me about this today, I have with me a mental health nurse and a psychotherapist, Talia Singer. 
The conversation was pre-recorded, and we touched on various aspects about what is mental health, what services does Canada offer at the moment, and how we can take care of our own mental health, whether we're insured or not. Before you dive into the podcast, just a quick gentle reminder that you can help support this podcast on Patreon. It's under my name, patreon.com slash Shreya We are also on Twitter if you would like to chat to us about this topic or future topics or previous topics. And you can find us on Twitter at underscore nth dimension. And hope you enjoy it. Hope it helps you out. I hope your mental health is doing great. And if not, please know that it will get better. All right, here we go. In conversation with Talia Singer. Hey, Talia, thank you so much for joining me today on the Nth Dimension to talk about potentially the most important thing on people's minds right now, mental health, and perhaps one of the most important things that we will be talking about when we come out of the pandemic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Before we truly start and dig into the various levels of what mental health is, how we can improve it, uh, where Canada stands on it, the resources we have, et cetera, to tackle it, um, why don't you introduce yourself to uh, to whoever is listening in? Oh, thanks. Yeah, so my name is Talia Singer, and I'm a podcast host as well of a podcast called Whatever Works. And this podcast explores all kinds of different psychotherapies and the different people who've tried them. And the reason why I'm so interested in therapy is because I'm a therapist myself. I'm a mental health nurse, and I've been working in the mental health field for over 20 years. That's amazing. Um, quick like, question for clarification for myself, just so I understand better. What is the difference between a mental health nurse and a nurse? And I'm oh, sorry that's if I come question. across as like, okay, thank you. I was like, I'm sorry if I come across as uh, uh, naive or something. And- no, not at all. Yeah, no, actually, I don't think a lot of people know this, but most nurses, I think all nurses graduate as generalists. So a bachelor in science and nursing. Um, and usually you do like a, like placements in different areas of hospitals or community, wherever it is that you request. Um, but you can also specialize. So the Canadian Nurses Association has various specialties and they include psychiatry and mental health and uh, community health and all kinds of different specialties. And they have requirements that you should work a certain number of hours within that specialty. And then you take an exam. So like a big exam that we take at the end of our nursing education, you would take another huge like three hour exam. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you have to requalify every five years and prove that you've continued your education. Okay. And what drew you to therapy in the first place? Well, I was, when I graduated nursing in 2000, the only job I could get because of the previous government's cuts to healthcare was part-time in the psychiatric ward in a hospital. And I was, you know, in this hospital doing night shifts and day shifts. And there was a lot of like medicating, a lot of medicating and sedating And I realized that what I really wanted to do was talk to people. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity for that. And so I thought that the way to get there was through public health. And at least I would get to do home visits. And that was true that I got to talk to people more. But the more I got out there in the home, the more I became interested in people's mental health. So I went on to study um, art therapy. And that was really my avenue in. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's so interesting you say that you saw like people being sedated and just medicines because I think especially in this part of the world, it's kind of become a catch-22 where people have been given meds to help them, but then those very meds have led to uh, the opioid crisis, for example, and also just addiction and suicide and whatnot. And then we're using meds again to treat that. And so it's like, how do you get out of that vicious cycle? But Well, I understand that point of view. I still am, as you know, a, um, a regulated healthcare provider, very big fan of some psych- of like psychiatric medication that's prescribed by an expert who's typically a psychiatrist or psychologist to help people who are in a state of illness, just like you would get blood pressure medication to lower your blood pressure. But you're right that, you know, there's this thing that we are living in, which is the opioid opioid crisis right now. Um, And sometimes the medication we use to deal with things like addiction and other things like that uh, can put people in a cycle um, of using um, medication on and off, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to lump all medication. For sure. Yeah. That's a a good distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe we can start off by talking about essentially what is mental health and then how is it different from mental illness? Mm-hmm. Well, mental health is really similar to asking what is physical health because they're like both subjective and objective responses and different types of assessments that you can do. And someone can live with a chronic mental illness and still have good mental health right? Like live with chronic anxiety, but still feel like they can manage it and live their lives type of thing. So you can probably say that mental health encompasses your psychological, your emotional, and even your social well-being. And you can have an emotional injury the same way you can have a physical injury. And when you have a physical injury, you go through treatment and rehabilitation. And when you have an emotional injury, you go through treatment and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I guess mental health is more pertaining to your day-to-day, like if someone suffers from a heartbreak or a bad day at work or, you know, consistently bad days at work and just um, pandemic, you know, how can I forget the pandemic? Um, so I guess those things relate to mental health, whereas mental mm-hmm. illness is more uh, maybe things like schizophrenia or bipolar, um, chronic anxiety. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> So like mental health, I would think of kind of like, again, like, you know, relating it to your physical health, like everyday fluctuations and how you feel and how you think, just like, you know, if you're walking briskly outdoors, your heart rate might be elevated. And so, you know, if you're suddenly feeling down about something because you had a crappy phone call with somebody and you're feeling kind of low, it's like a normal everyday fluctuation that most people are pretty resilient Mm -hmm. um, and can like move on. When we think about mental illness, we think about something that uh, is causing you some type of dysfunction. Um, So whether it is like in the way that you cope with things, in the way that you're living your life, you can no longer act the way you would like to act because you're ill. Just like as if you were having either a cold, like an acute mental illness, which would be short term, or some kind of chronic illness that is long term. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I've been wondering about and this came up more when I was doing my research for this episode, but I think it's one of the things that people ask most often, like, why do you think 
mental health has been, or mental illness, both mental health and mental illness have been like, have at, like, why is, why do you think there's a layer of shame and stigmatization mm-hmm. to, to these two factors of our well-being, which we don't see in physical health? And, you know, we, I think all, it, it's, it's unfortunate that that has happened because I think at some point in our lives, we all feel low, if nothing else, you know, we all feel consistent days of sadness. So everyone has experienced what it feels to have like a cloud cover in your brain and your mind that doesn't allow you to function optimally. And then yet we don't want to talk about it. I I feel that that has become less and less in this part Mm -hmm. of the world. And I think in other countries, maybe I can, you know, safely talk about India. It's hard to talk about mental health and mental illnesses. So um, so yeah, why do you think there's a layer of shame attached to um, or this part of our being that is so necessary for our func- functionality and well-being? Yeah, I think that it, it might have a lot to do with the fact that our mental health is almost invisible. So I can't show you the anatomy of my psychology so much and say, here, this is where the hurt is type of thing. I have to kind of explain it to you. And when I do, it's a very personal thing from my own perspective. And you might not be able to see where it hurts for me. And sometimes invisible things can be very, very frightening. So for instance, you know, when I think about the invisibility of our psychology and our own and our mental health, I think that, you know, something like um, depression is very common with heart disease, but we're much more likely to see uh, like a slasher movie about like a mentally ill, you know, uh, serial killer than we are like somebody with angina, you know, or like high blood pressure or something like that. (laughs) Doesn't make for an exciting thriller, I guess. I know. I know. I mean, we angina on the loose. I know. (laughs) We often really fear what we can't see. We can't see. And so and and so it's scary. Maybe it's happening to me, you know, like I don't know. It's invisible. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So sorry, how long have you been a mental health nurse? I've been working in mental health since 2000, since I graduated. Okay. So the reason I asked that is because, so from 2000 to now, 22, 2022, what shift have you seen um, in the way we um, approach mental health and then just generally talk about it as well in our society? Mm -hmm. People have become quite well-versed. Um, in different types of mental health and mental illness. I think as you you noted, some of the stigma has been lifted, not all of it, but there was like a movement for a while with these like semicolon tattoos and people were really literally displaying it to the world saying, just so you know, you know, I have, I deal with a mental health condition um, and things like that. And you see celebrities talking about it. And uh, there's generally a lot of talk, like now with the pandemic, as you noted, like everyone's talking about it, but not, we're not doing much about it, but we're certainly talking about it. So, I mean, that's at least a step in the right direction. Okay. You have put me in a spot where I can ask you these questions. Um, So hold on one second. I'm going to scroll through my document. 
you're right. Everyone in the past two years has started talking about the pan- uh, mm-hmm. has started talking about um, mental health more so than before. And two things I want to talk about is um, what do you think about the commodification of well, I put words in your mouth. I'll take it back. <laughs> <laughs> what do you leading think? leading Shreya? <laughs> the leading question. Let me retract my statement. Um, what do you think about corporations like Bell um, running campaigns like the Let's Talk campaign, which is focused on mental health? Um, yeah. Before I ramble on, what are your thoughts on on that as a method to create more awareness, engagement, solutions, etc.? Hmm. I think it's great to have, you know, like a Bell Let's Talk day that raises awareness. And I think they also raise funds, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't know where those funds go, but I'm sure it's somewhere good. Uh, so, so oh, they go to a bunch of universities. I was oh. reading an article on the Fulcrum, which is uh, the University of Ottawa's um, independent, like student newspaper newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, and I found this really like good paragraph from that. So I'll read that out later, but, but yeah, sorry to cut you off the funds. Some of the funds go to universities. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think it's great. Um, but I think like any movement, you know, to, to destigmatize anything, we need a lot more at various levels of, you know, society. So starting at the very top and government, um, and then moving down to communities and then to neighborhoods. So there's a lot of work to be done, but sure, let's talk about it. Let's have a day. Let's get famous people talking about it. The more, the Mm -hmm. merrier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a bit of a, um, capitalist Grinch. Um, so the reason I say that is because, um, when I heard about the campaign, I was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. And then I, and then I start, start thinking about it. I was like, wait, hold up. What are they doing inside their own workplace to improve Ooh. people's mental health? You know, and because it's like this massive oligopoly, which has like billions of dollars and it's mostly, I, I, I think from my tiny weenie weenie knowledge, like built on sales, um, I'm just like, I'm pretty sure they have sale targets. And so I'm just like, it always bothers me when, cor- personally, it bothers me when corporations like latch onto a movement that they think is going to become big just to build mm-hmm. like their brand awareness and like um, market themselves and have this image. But then when it truly comes to like fixing things, which you can do with in a small community of like your 1,000 employees or 2,000, I don't know how big Bell is, but. That, that's where my botherance comes in. But I guess to your point, um, they're, they're, they are also creating awareness for people who might not be so engaged in the movement or um, may not know much about mental health. And I guess there are pros and cons to an approach like that. Well, you know, I too have this kind of skepticism around like capitalizing mental health. And it happened in the pandemic that suddenly because we as therapists were offering online therapy, there have been like all of these online, you know, court like businesses offering um, therapy to to huge corporations as part of, you know, uh, their extended employee benefits program. And usually what they are is EAP, Employee Assistance Program 
type of support where each employee gets kind of like five sessions, you know, to uh, for their mental health that's covered by the employer. And this type of therapy is very specific. It's either solution-focused based therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Both of these therapies are evidence-based um, and typically have uh, pretty good results, but it's also very limiting, very, very, very limiting. So I'm trying to figure out what a good um, comparison would be, but it's kind of like saying uh, the company will pay uh, for your lunch and you can only have <laughs> a chicken cutlet or lasagna. And that's it. Um, okay, like, okay, they're delicious. Thank you so much. Chicken cutlet, lasagna. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't fit for everybody. And also, if you have something that is more severe than a mental health concern and you are suffering with mental illness, you're actually going to need a lot more than five sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about, um, because you are a psychotherapist? Yes, right? yes, I am. <laughs> we can talk about the difference between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, and is there something else in between? Yes, please. Uh, I, I totally forget. Somebody who's completely, calls themselves like a counselor or something a counselor, like that. Right. Okay. Can, yeah. can you actually, I was going to ask you at the beginning as well. Um, can, can you tell us the difference between those four, um, fractions, I guess. Mm -hmm. So a psychiatrist is someone with a medical degree. It's a doctor and they have the ability to diagnose and treat mental illness. Um, they do it using a variety of uh, interventions and assessments, and they will use medication. And sometimes some psychiatrists also do therapy, whether it's psychoanalysis or cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever that they specialize in. And they will follow the client either in hospital or the community and check in with them you know, uh, once a month or something like that. Mm -hmm. A clinical psychologist has a PhD in psychology um, and they're a clinician. They too can prescribe some medications and do some assessments and, um, uh, some, and some diagnoses. Uh, so very similar to a psychiatrist um, and they also work in hospital in the community. Um, psychotherapists don't prescribe medication, don't diagnose, the only thing that psychotherapists do is psychotherapies, uh, psychotherapy type interventions. And so that kind of like talking uh, intervention where you go to someone's office and you tell them how you're feeling and they do it you know, through all kinds of means. You can go to a sand tray therapist who uses a sandbox. You can go to an art therapist. You can go to a music therapist. You can go to someone who just talks. You can go to a psychoanalyst. You can go to any type of psychotherapy that works for you. But psychotherapy is a regulated intervention in Ontario. And in Ontario, you can no longer do psychotherapy without being a member of the College of Psychotherapists, being a member of the College of Nurses as a mental health nurse, being a social worker, or being a doctor or psychologist. So people who used to call themselves like counselors, that is like a kind of like a word that aligns with psychotherapy and you have to be careful to make sure the person is a registered psychotherapist or somebody like who can do psychotherapy, social worker, mental health nurse, doctor, blah, blah, blah. So the difference between a psychotherapist and a counselor is that the psychotherapist is formally registered to practice. That's and a right. Counselor has gone to school, but they're not registered. Doesn't not necessarily, but you're really not allowed to do kind of that kind of mental health treatment anymore in Ontario um, and some other 
provinces without being a member of the college. Gotcha. And in the middle, you also mentioned um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Is that right? CBT. Yeah. What is that? It's a very popular form of therapy that I don't do personally, um, but it's it's taught very widely, um, particularly to in masters of counseling, um, you know, uh, education, and um, it's used for all kinds to treat all kinds of issues like depression, anxiety, um, insomnia, uh, all kinds of issues with great success. Okay, uh, well, I just got my mental health one hundred and one there, <laughs> uh, but yeah, to to to. To route back to what we were saying about um, corporations kind of latching on to uh, social issues, um, even though they might not be providing safe scenarios and stress-free environments to their own employees. Before I before we move on to the other part of this, I just wanted to read out this like one tiny paragraph that I found when I was doing my research for this podcast. I think it's so brilliant. It's written by this guy called Lucas Redman. He wrote mm -hmm. an opinion piece on Bell. Let's talk about Bell. Let's talk big uh, uh, for the fulcrum, as I mentioned earlier. So I think it's very poignant. Um, it says Bell has committed. I don't even know how much this money is. Bell has committed um, nine figures is that million? 129,000 maybe. I don't know. One million. Okay. Six figures. Okay. <laughs> I suck at math. To Me mental too. health initiatives, which seems like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, this is just a drop in the bucket. In 2020, Bell Canada reported an annual revenue of $22.8 billion. Wow. I know, right? And yeah. then he goes on to say, if my math is correct, then Bell only contributed 0.0053% of their revenue to mental health. I'm rolling my eyes. Um, and then he goes on to say, the amount that Bell committed is slightly more than the value of COVID-19 subsidies they received from the government. This fact would be understandable if Bell Canada were a struggling company, but it's clear that they are not. So this drop from their ocean of money only makes a small splash when compared to the amount they have donated, uh, they could have donated. But I thought this was a, like, this kind of captures how massive corporations just like want to portray themselves as like holier than thou, but they're actually not. Does it feel like that social justice bandwagon, like during Pride Week, where suddenly like all these big corporations have like a pride sticker that goes, you know, on their you know, product or whatever? 100%. It's totally like that. Um, but going back to how the pandemic has kind of, you know, I hate using this phrase, but whatever, cliches are there for a reason, shown a light on mental health um, and allow and made it more easy, easier to talk about um, how, you know, being enclosed indoors and not having potentially like losing your close network of friends, working from home, losing work, losing hours, cost of living going up, like, et cetera, et cetera, the list is very long, has made it easier to talk about how that is affecting your mental health. Um, so, um, you know, what you said about different levels of society must come together to push for change. I found it interesting that the Star Editorial wrote an article or wrote an editorial piece on mental health must be a priority next election. 
uh, next provincial election. And they go on to say that the crisis that is mental health in this province should be a paramount issue for those who seek to govern for the simple reason that it affects just about everything. Um, what, what do you think about that, the intersection of mental health and how it affects just about everything? It's true. It really does affect everything. And the government of Canada has what's called um, a resource on the social determinants of health and health inequalities, which is a big long list. I think there's like 10 or 12 different like personal, social, economic, um, different areas uh, that intersect in society. And I'm just gonna look here a second. Okay, so social determinants of health and health inequalities. This is a list of factors that Im involve a long, a, a broad range of interconnected um, issues. So in the pandemic, there was an example, I think it came out of Quebec. There was a woman, Joyce Echequan, who was 37 years old. She was an Adikamek woman and she died in hospital because the nurses were ignoring her concerns, her health concerns. Um, so really racist treatment by the healthcare workers in hospital. So there's more than one social determinant uh, at work here when this happens. Could be race, gender, health status, access to healthcare services, and throw a pandemic in there. And you also talked about opiate addiction and all of that. I mean, this is where everything really kind of intersects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, when we decided to do this podcast together, um, one, what you, there was this one line that you said, and I was like, whoa, like I never thought about it that way. And you said, um, I have it written down here. You said that mental health intersects with housing, drug abuse, suicide, income mm -hmm. inequality. And, you know, of course, you've also just mentioned um, intersections like your, your gender, your uh, race, um, your sexuality, your... Um, you know, the income of your house, all these things obviously do um, play a huge role on, on mental health. So if it is that, and we spend so much money on it also, uh, apparently Canada spends uh, $79.9 billion. That's what it's spent in 2021 on treating. Where? <laughs> Where? <laughs> Where are they spending it? I haven't seen it. Where? Uh -huh. Okay, no, wait, excuse me. I was about to spread fake news there. Oh, My no. no, the economic cost of mental illnesses to the Canadian healthcare and social support system was projected to be $79.9 billion in 2021, which is a bit different than what they spent. Um, so my bad, I'm not spreading fake news here. Um, so it is obviously very important, you know, how you are will affect how you participate in society and then ultimately what you get from society. It, it, it sounds like I'm commodifying our, um, our existence, but um, you know, to be a Grinch again, at this moment in time, we do live in a fairly like capitalist commodified world. So how do we, um, how, can you maybe flesh out more? Like how do we um, approach affordable housing? And then also at the same time, that means we're approaching mental health and, you know, income inequality and mental health, et cetera. Oh, that's a very big question. And I'm suddenly feeling very small, like <laughs> a small nurse in my little therapy office. Like, <laughs> how do we fix the world? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think of it like this, that if we imagine 
you know, mental health and mental illness as like a sprained ankle and a broken leg. And that everyone in Canada had either one, a sprained ankle or a broken leg right now, we would probably do more than we're doing now. Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, what's happening. Um, And the kind of services that we offer are very much at the end of the line. It's very hard to get mental health services in the way that you really have to be in crisis right now. As a therapist, I could tell you that I have a wait list because there's so much demand. All the therapists I know have a wait list. And I'm a fee for service. You have to pay out of pocket to come see me. I have an office. I have to pay rent at that office. Now, a lot of therapists have a sliding scale and a lot of student therapists have an even lower sliding scale than that. But some people can't even afford that. Oh, like they have a gradient of how much they will charge. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Based on income. Um, And uh, but if you're homeless, I would imagine that that's too much to spend. Um, And why wouldn't your mental health be affected by, you know, any type of housing insecurity, food insecurity, throw kids in there, throw, as we said, those social determinants of health, throw race, throw sexuality, you know, throw gender in there. And, you know, why would you, why would you not be feeling anxious, scared, depressed? Yeah. And I think um, intergenerational trauma also plays um, Mm -hmm. into how, into our mental health. But I think it also, I was, um, I should should almost not be talking about this because, you know, I'm, I, I'm just like a journalist. I don't really know biology and all that stuff, but apparently like chronic stress alters your, your, your DNA genes. It alters like what you're going to pass down to your next of kin. And then your next of kin is then more likely to be born with a mental illness, like maybe bipolar, um, bipolar, I don't want to call it a disorder, but, um, bipolarness. Um, and I, I, epigenetics has been doing a lot of research on this. Like if you can fix chronic issues now if you can fix your diet for example if you suffer from diabetes or you have like you know for example i'm indian we were prone almost to diabetes if you can fix your diet now then going forward your next of kin won't be affected by diabetes maybe so all this to say that intergenerational trauma i'm sure also plays that comes into play when we talk about indigenous folks for example who've Mm -hmm. you know experienced so much brutality from um from 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 our history here in canada um so sorry i've lost my train of uh, thought but um there is a lot of research out there on mental health and intergenerational trauma a lot of the research has come actually from holocaust survivors and their generations Um, and, uh, there's two factors here because with mental health, there's always the genetic component. We call it the nature and nurture, you know, contribution. So there's the genetic component when you're in utero and your mother is experiencing a lot of stress because you're in Syria or you're in 1945 Germany, or you've come from a place that, you know, or even you're just like in Toronto and food insecure or housing insecure and the cortisol that's being released in your body and, you know, the fetuses in utero. So that's the the kind of like uh, physiological component. And then there's the environmental component, which is the nurture. And that's, you know, where are you growing up? 
Do you have enough heat? Do you have enough food? How do your parents relate? Do you have parents? Do they fight? Do they not fight? You know, like, are they able to attend to your needs? Uh, you know, are there people in your life you can rely on? Do you, have you suffered any type of childhood trauma? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's always the nature and nurture interplay. Yeah, that sounds so scary for people coming out of the pandemic now. Like, we're going to have so many mental health babies. And we're, like, by that, I mean, we're adults, you know, experiencing, um, like like we spoke about earlier, reduced hours at work, potentially lost work. Um, you know, cost of living is high. Maybe you, you're unable to meet rent. And, like, I'm, I can't even begin to imagine how all those... Um, how those things might be affecting who you are at the moment and then how you're going to um, interact with your, uh, in your interpersonal relationships and then broader society. And, um, you know, worst case scenarios could lead to like less solidarity, like less neighborly relations, um, maybe more crime. I don't know. Or maybe it could go the opposite way where we increase love because everyone's feeling like crap and they're like, okay, let's all come together and at least hug. Well, we're in a pandemic, so we can't do that a bit. You know, I, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic. I, I'm, I did my um, PhD in social psychology, and I really feel that as people, we have a large capacity for destruction, but we also have a large capacity for rebuilding, for resilience, for helping out one another. Um, if you ever follow like Instagram, things like the good news, news movement, um, that's something that I've follow where they just sends you like positive stories from around the world <laughs> yeah that's so important because news is also so negative and you know what's the point of always like waking up to terrible news people are also doing really good stuff but news has its own model of like making money which is to instill fear potentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so where can can you tell me where canada is at in terms of providing um mental health care um like it does physical health care we have a health care system that is free at the point of service whether you're insured or not um if you're insured you get benefits etc but everyone homeless uh people with jobs without benefits can all access our health care system that's amazing what what does canada have for mental health canada has a system that treats people as if their heads are detached from their bodies Um, And so all those lovely things that you mentioned, which are pretty hard to access right now because hospitals are overloaded and staff has been out, you know, due to staffing shortages and other things like that. But, you know, we have this idea in Canada that mental health care is extra. So if you have a lovely job that has, you know, extended health care benefits, you might be able to access some mental health care. If you are truly in crisis, you could take yourself to emergency with everybody else's emergencies and sit there for hours until, you know, someone triages you and determines whether you come in or go home. And then if you go home, you're going to have to wait maybe a month, maybe two for someone to contact you from the hospital to determine whether they have room to put you on the wait list for their group therapy or for, you know, to meet with a psychiatrist once a month. And if you have some extra money, you could pay for your own mental health care by finding a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, somebody that you want to see. Um, and, And that's a freedom of having, you know, enough money to pay for that. But um, even, you know, as a therapist, my clients who can afford it say, you know, 
this is very expensive. It is very expensive. They're like, if I come and see you once a week at 140, I I charge 145. My therapist charges 180 and you know, he's, he's worth it. But I'm saying, I mean, it's, it's an expense. You have to really pay for it. Like you pay for the gym, put it that way, You pay for it. Like you pay for the gym. Mm -hmm. It's a very expensive gym. (laughs) It's a very expensive gym. Very expensive gym. Yeah. Therapy is very expensive. And you know, even, um, but that's only if you live in the city, because if you live in a rural area, if you live on a first nations reserve, I don't think there's much for you. Yeah. Uh, do you mean in terms of the number of therapists available? Yeah, Yeah, totally. I mean, now that we've gone online, there's actually increased in access, but you have to be someone who is happy with a Zoom therapy appointment. That's mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But even then, what if you live in a rural area with crappy internet service? Yeah. And then that also brings in an interesting angle of whether this type of therapy that we imagine, you know, sitting one-on-one with your therapist, essentially talking and then they listen, they tell you something, all of that, like figuring out your values. I've done therapy too. I know every therapist wants to figure out what your values are. <laughs> um, so all of that. Um, but then I also wonder whether that this model of therapy that we uh, you know, generally imagine, whether that fits into different cultures. And mm-hmm. when, you know, if you're sitting on a reserve and you don't have access to jobs, crime is high, um, water, clean water is not available. Um, all these like myriad issues, housing, you know, all this, then is this kind of therapy going to solve what, um, a young person, 16 year old person in, um, on a first nations land is experiencing when they have all these other issues. It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy when your needs are not being met. But then also, on the other hand, I also feel that um, Indigenous people also have like a community of elders. And I wonder how that works into helping their mental, supporting their mental health, helping their mental health. Um, You know, I don't know how these things work. Um, But but I am interested in learning about whether this model of therapy um, can be applied to other communities. Definitely, because first of all, there's like hundreds of different types of therapies out there that different psychotherapists, regulated healthcare professionals practice. But I think that there's always room for traditional healing practices. Um, And it's definitely something, as you say, that should be considered and incorporated and encouraged. Um, And there should always be representation from different communities to be able to inform, uh, you know, practice in therapy. So lots of room, lots of room, and also lots of therapies out there, lots of different Mm -hmm. therapies. There's no one therapy, really. Yeah, I think, um, you know, diversity in therapists is also very important Mm because, you know, immigrants will have different issues that, you know, maybe someone who's been here for a long time uh, may not be able to relate with them. I think, I guess you can talk this more, like, is it important to establish, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Similarity between you and your therapist. How important is that to building a relationship? Hmm. You know, my therapist is um, a man who is older than me, probably the age of my father, but 
he really gets me. And I think it's like finding a therapist is like being Cinderella. You have, might have to try on a lot of shoes until one fits you. And it might not look the way you thought, you know, it would look. You might go in thinking like, this is what I want. But the person who fits the best might look completely different. So do you need someone who is exactly like you? It's not necessary. It sometimes helps. Um, but not always if you find someone who really gets you. Mm -hmm. So how is that different from a friend? <laughs> mm, very good question. So with a friend, when you're talking to them about things in your life, you inevitably not only edit what you say, but you also have to leave space for your friend to talk about them. That's one. That's one thing, right? Because then you're being rude, right? You're like, me, 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 me. <laughs> now, in therapy, that's not only uh, encouraged, it's like, it's really the reason you go to therapy is to talk about you. And the person that you're talking to has no other agenda but to understand what you're talking about and to really get your experience. And they do that through learning techniques and very deep listening so that what they're trying to do is really form a picture of what's going on in your life at that moment. And your friend who probably cares about you very much is trying to listen and be empathic and be a good friend. They're also very busy and they're thinking about like what they're going to make for dinner and whether there's going to be a delay on the TTC and how long your meeting is and other things like that. Your therapist has no other agenda but to use their skills to help you and understand you. Mm -hmm. And and it's a it's it's not only uh, a skill, I think it's also a talent to be a really good listener. Mm -hmm. I really like what you said there, essentially like understand your experience mm -hmm. um, and be an, em empathetic to that. I think like that's something we can all take away. And I think that's what compassion is, like understanding um, one's experience um sorry understanding someone's experience and then relating to them on that level um but yeah one of the things just a funny anecdote one of the things i found actually really difficult in my therapy sessions was it was my first time i'm doing therapy i'm doing it online and one of the things i found really difficult was talking about me like it was really awkward to spend 60 minutes just going on about me, 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 me. And then like invariably at the end of like every topic I would go, so what about you? And she's like, no, this is about you. And I'm like, okay, it's just really hard to rewire yourself and, uh, and to just focus on you and someone sitting there to just give you that attention. It was lovely, but it was, I found it a bit overwhelming also, but maybe the really next <laughs> it takes some getting used to for sure. It really takes some getting used to. And uh, the more you go, the more comfortable you become so that people in the beginning, they do start out to be like, so how was your weekend? You know, uh, asking very polite conversational things. But eventually, once they get used to me, they'll walk in, they'll be like, I have to tell you about my week. And they get right into it. And that's when I know that, you know, we've got a good relationship. They're comfortable because they don't have to pause uh, because they know exactly why they're here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you a question. Just slip me, uh, give me, sorry, give me a second. Mm -hmm. Ah, anyways. Um, so it'll you, come. yeah, it'll come to me as we, as we start talking again. At 2 a.m. Oh yes. This is what I wanted to ask you. How important is ongoing therapy 
in, in your life. Like you are a therapist. One would imagine you have perfect mental health. <laughs> oh yeah. I am just, you know, the, I don't know what, <laughs> but you have a therapist too. I have a therapist. Yeah, for sure. I have a therapist, um, you know, because life is hard right now. Um, but I've been going to therapy for quite some time because the type of therapy that I particularly enjoy is called psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis really doesn't believe in an end to therapy. I think p- some people eventually graduate, but I haven't met these people yet. Um, but uh, so that's a very particular style of psychotherapy that I like. And that's why I say there's so many different styles out there. So if you did choose something like solution focused based therapy, you would be done in like three to five sessions type of thing. You'd be done and over with. Some people even do one session. I mean, that's kind of feels short to me. But this type of therapy that I like is ongoing and basically forever and, you know, where I check in and say, like, these are my thoughts. I really feel like, you know, my thoughts kind of get stuck in me and my feelings and I need to tell my therapist about it in order to feel relief. And that's what works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for me. Um you know, I, I promise after a few more of these questions, I will go back to what the topic at hand is. But I think this is... Oh, I think it's good. I think this yeah. is valuable in understanding like broadly why it is important to talk about mental health and the different aspects that come with it. So I'm guessing you're married. I'm married. Okay. That was a pointed question. The future I will ask in more open manner. Note to self. <laughs> <laughs> um so you're married and um, have you been married for a long time? Open question. <laughs> I, oh my God. Uh, I've been married since 2003. So I think, is that considered a long time? Is it almost 19 years? Or? I, you know, the rate people get together and break up in my life, I would say it's a pretty long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I, the reason I'm asking you these questions is so a therapist essentially is someone who is trying, who has a vested interest and agenda in understanding who you are mm-hmm. and giving you that space to talk and someone to actively listen. Mm-hmm. So in a long-term partnership like yours, I would imagine that your partner has understood you somewhat, given that you guys have been living together for about 20 years, has a vested interest in you, <laughs> the fact that you guys have a long marriage, um, and, you know, because I'm guessing he likes you, if nothing else, sometimes, <laughs> you know, he, that's a, he, he wants to actively listen. So why do you choose to go to a certified professional over your partner who will most likely give you all that you need? Well, that's dumb of me to say, because certified pro- professional will give you something, but your partner will give you active listening. He has a vested agenda in you, interest in you, and he understands you. I'm not with you with the active listening, because <laughs> I think it's so much harder to do. I think people say that they're actively listening, but to actively listening would be not only to hear the words, but also listen for the emotion behind your words, look at your body language, and look at also the overall theme 
of what you know you've been talking about or the person that you are. And so when my clients come to me for therapy, I'm actively listening and I have, because I'm not related to them, because that would be a dual relationship and that's not allowed in therapy. I can't give therapy to like my husband and my boss, you know, like my mother, whoever. I need the distance from, from knowing the person every day to really understand a general theme of what their life is going like what their life is about and what they're going through right now. A lot of people come to therapy saying, listen, I want to talk about this, this relationship with this, you know, with my boyfriend or whatever. And they think that that's the problem. But when I, as the therapist, am able to step back and say, well, tell me about your relationships with your parents and tell me about your relationship with your siblings and your best friends. And we kind of form a general picture of who they are. That kind of listening allows me to have the objectivity to say, what do you think? Do you think that there's, you know, a repetitive pattern here? And that person can then have some insight and say, ha, huh, I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. I love those moments when those happen, when those happen, they're like, oh, I never thought about that. And it, it takes someone who you can feel free to say anything to, because with any type of good therapy, there really is no taboo mm -hmm. um, and can feel like, you know, you are accepted by the person and even liked by the, by the therapist. Um, and you don't have to go home and sit across the dinner table from them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess the reason I'm asking a lot of these questions is because, you know, like you pointed out, therapy is expensive. Even on benefits, you'll be lucky to get 10 sessions out of your benefit. Um, and even if you are on a healthy, I say this with quotes, this is a podcast, I forget. <laughs> healthy um if you have a healthy salary even then like you know as i've said so many times cost of living is high affordable housing is difficult um you know my generation at least is i um can, is always worried about um whether they will be able to you know save for retirement travel like do everything that a good life should have um so i think people would take their pennies and put it into making their life easier than, than going into therapy. You know, so the reason I'm asking all these questions is how can we, you know, how can we incorporate good, uh, good systems of good, good systems of solution systems within our network of friends and family to, to keep ourselves floating and swimming rather than sinking and drowning. Well, I mean, I think with therapy, the reason people come in is because they can't anymore. Whatever they tried, talking to their husbands or partners, talking to their friends, uh, you know, blog, like blogilates, uh, you know, walking in nature, listening to calming music, all of those are wonderful things and probably should be incorporated into your day to day physical activity is so important, good nutrition is so important, good sleep is so important and works very well, you know, with mental health, other mental health strategies. But typically, when people come to therapy is because they simply cannot anymore, whatever it is that they're doing does not work. And they're suffering. And so to think about spending the money on helping you reduce your suffering. That's, that's what, you know, mm -hmm. I agree. I, unfortunately, I just feel like in our society, we have made getting help for your mind 
your mental well-being a privilege, unfortunately. Yes. Yes, for sure. For sure. And it's unfortunate that we have to wait until we're suffering to even acknowledge to ourselves that we might need to do something about it. We feel almost like, what's the problem? Like, why am I depressed? I mean, like I have uh, a job, a food on the table, whatever it is. And yet I'm so depressed and I can't get out of bed. And it's not until I can't get out of bed several days in a row that, you know, or somebody tells me, you should really talk to somebody that's when I feel like I have the right to access mental health care. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. We should feel free to go get health care the way we go get a checkup at the doctor. You don't even have to have something wrong with you to benefit from therapy. Sometimes I make a therapy appointment to tell them something good that's happened in my life. You'll never believe it. Best we can ever, blah, blah, blah. You know. Mm -hmm. Before I jump into asking you about like an ideal a scenario where we have good free access for everyone for mental health. I want to ask you uh, something else. I've, I'm always curious about um, like human beings, the way we are and why certain things happen to us. Um, because it's amazing how in like 70,000 years we've come so far, we were just, you know, throwing spears around 70,000 years ago. <laughs> we're talking on zoom. We're recording a podcast. How fans yeah. <laughs> my my cave people ancestors will will be flabbergasted um why do you think we have do you, would you be able to i'm putting you on the spot and you can totally say i don't know this you can go and research but would you happen to know why human beings feel depressed like what is the biological history that like do you think seventy thousand years ago people felt neanderthals felt homo sapiens felt depressed Let me think about it for a second. I don't have any kind of ready response for this. So, okay, so 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 if we were to think about it from like a physiological perspective, we can say like, listen, we have these neurotransmitters called dopamine and serotonin. And sometimes some people uh, don't have enough dopamine and serotonin in their brains and they feel really depressed or sometimes really anxious. Um, and so for sure. I don't, I don't think that it's an anomaly that's unique to us and probably exists in other animals as well. Um, and I try to think of this Neanderthal with a spear and this Neanderthal is like aiming it at a deer or something like that. And he misses and he misses and he misses <laughs> and he misses. I don't know. I mean, you kind of feel like... Yeah, like, so like he misses. And so he can't eat that day. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I can imagine that there was something akin to depression. And maybe the things that we get depressed about, like, like, now we get depressed about scrolling through social media and watching other people's perfect curated lives, right? Or we get depressing the Kardashians and all their wealth and why can't my life be like that or something like that. I think different things make us depressed, but I imagine we've had the ability to be depressed for eons. Yeah, for a long time. You have the best metaphors, by the way. <laughs> They're amazing. Oh, thank you very <laughs> much. Cinderella shoes to chicken cutlets and lasagna to this dude missing his spears. Um, so what do you think an ideal scenario looks like where people get access to mental health like they do right now in their health care system for their physical well-being? 
the the simple and the hard answer you know is that it's covered by OHIP somehow and uh it's covered by psychotherapy is covered by OHIP um and uh that people have uh, the ability to go to the therapist for you know however many times in a year because it's necessary it's so necessary that that's really kind of like my short answer but i know it's much more complex than that yeah um that's essentially what um, OHIP offers to us for all other aspects of ourselves. Um, obviously, there are flaws, but that's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down. But yeah, I, I think that's yeah. the long of it. Essentially, people get access to mental health. Um, right now in the pandemic, they created this kind of like website where you can do self-therapy or you could have like brief sessions like online with somebody like very very removed but like you can do self-cognitive behavioral therapy or solution focused therapy but i find it so insulting like you would never tell people to do their own dentistry or like <laughs> or like oh, why and you know a few tools good luck with your cat i know i know i find it like it boggles the mind here read this website i mean my my like my 90 year old grandmother can't use it uh, it's ridiculous yeah that's laughable to be honest and it it, it just shows that are you, like to me that says are you not taking it seriously do you not believe this is an issue for people who've been living in a lockdown and uh, lockdown for 2 years let alone like frontline workers and people at grocery stores, gig workers, et cetera, who harder lives, low income, racialized, indigenous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we kind of touched on this in the middle when I was <laughs> harping on why you go to a therapist, but do you have any, you know, three solutions, let's say, pointed question, three solutions for people to access mental health, um, which is low cost, you know, people without insurance, even with insurance can do to keep themselves um, afloat. What can mm -hmm. we do with our friends and family or by ourselves um, mm -hmm. to keep our, oil, our mind oils, uh, mind wheels well oiled? I don't know if, you know, these are responses that listeners will like, but my first response is that there actually is a lot out there that's, uh, diverse and unique you gotta look for it though so when i talked about sliding scale there's a lot of therapists on psychology today is a website that you know therapists sign up for um, and you can like scroll through it like tinder and find a therapist that you think you might like and you can filter it by sliding scale so that's one um, and a lot of the sliding scales are, are very very generous but you can also approach certain schools of therapy um, like say uh, schools for psychoanalysis schools for art therapy schools for psychotherapy and they'll have students who want to practice and a lot of private practices also bring on therapy students that have a much lower rate so mm -hmm. consider that consider things like group therapy that also might be a lower rate because there's more people and um, consider things that you know might be a little bit out of your comfort zone even like online versions of group therapy that maybe not be your number one choice but try things on and see how they fit how they work how they make you feel mm -hmm. the other part of that which people are going to hate is all the cliche things that everyone's like yeah yeah and so if you're waiting let's say 
to get some mental health support, do the things around you that make you feel good. Take good care of your sleep. For God's sakes, go to sleep at a reasonable hour. Um, reduce your alcohol. I know it sounds preachy, but I mean, it's true. Uh, exercise, uh, you know, and do it every single day, like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. Eat good things. Spend time with people in a safe way during COVID. And I know that's very, very challenging for people. And like the regulations keep changing. We're freaked out. You know, we don't know what's going on. Use your mask. Don't use your mask. Do this, do that. Like it's constantly changing. Do whatever it is that facilitates you spending time with somebody else. If that means sitting in the same room wearing N95 masks with a HEPA filter in between you while you're sitting at opposite ends of the room, like, do it, be in person and do it because we need it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's preachy. I mean, you know, I think you pointed this out earlier. A lot of what we feel in terms of the different levels of anxiety, some people feel to different levels of depression. Some people feel a lot of it has to do with the chemical chemicals inside us. And some people are more prone to depression than others. And there's some people have a chemical imbalance and, you know, we have to take these biological factors into account. And, um, personally, I, you know, try my best to sleep seven to eight hours. So I'm a big, I vouch for it big time. It makes you feel good. Um, good diet makes you feel good, but, but yeah, those, those are not preachy. Those are not preachy solutions at all. And, um, yeah, we have a very psychosomatic relationship with ourselves and it's important to, to nourish us ourselves in, in, in a way that will feed both our body and mind. Now, I also know that's a very privileged, like I, I recognize that it's also very privileged, right? Because we were talking about people who are underhoused, uh, who are going through challenges economically and like, okay, so maybe getting a good night's sleep in a shelter is really not available. Yeah, 100%. Um, it is a privilege to be able to, you know, nourish yourself with leafy greens if that's mm-hmm. what you need or yeah. eight hours of sleep. Um, and hopefully post the pandemic, my hope is that we will, I don't imagine anything coming to us anytime soon regarding, um, you know, accessible service to mental health anytime soon, just because that's how politics works, I suppose. But maybe this is a good start that post pandemic, we can start talking about mental health. We have always started talking about it, but talk about it more and more to create that awareness. And as you mentioned, different levels society can come together to make that happen uh, make that happen um so on that note talia thank you so much for joining me today on the nth dimension do you have any last wise parting words for us i think going back to that idea of stigma that if there's been a big shift and it's continuing to shift that we haven't arrived yet where we want to be but it is moving in the right direction and we will i think eventually get there but we are on our way i'm hopeful mm-hmm. me too well thank you for joining me today talia thank you very much thank you all right folks that was another episode of the nth dimension I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode on mental health and I hope you were able to walk away with some tidbits on how to take care of yourself better. Like we take care of our physical health, go to the gym, walk, eat healthy, basically nourish ourselves with all the good stuff in life. I think sometimes we forget to do that for our own mental health. 
um, maybe because it's invisible. Um, or maybe because maybe because it's invisible and maybe we're not feeling the repercussions immediately. But I do believe that we have a very psychosomatic relationship with ourselves. And in order to live a truly nourished life, it's important to take care of your mental and your physical well-being. But that's just my two cents. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And please be sure that I will be producing more episodes going forward this year. If you would like to chat online, then please do reach out to me on Twitter. You can find this podcast under the handle at underscore nth dimension. And you can also support us on Patreon. All right, folks, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you so much for supporting us all this while. Till next time, please stay safe and peace.